entrepreneurship is the ultimate in professional sports. Plus, on top of that, you don't reach your peak until you hit your 50s anyway. Whereas in most sports, you're done by the time you're 30. Entrepreneurship is the ultimate opportunity, but it requires the same level of emotional state management that professional sports does, only even more because we play it for longer. Hey man, welcome back. Today we have Eric Edmeads on the line, who is a serial entrepreneur who's been involved in Hollywood production. He's done wireless networking. He's done military research. He's done life-saving equipment. He's got a health and fitness company called WildFit, and he's a well-recognized business speaker. And he even has a business speaking company. So what's different about Eric, as you can clearly see with my little riff there, is that he's had success across multiple different business types, as well as multiple different products and services. And so what he does with us today is he takes all this experience and shares with us what he sees are the throughputs across all these different verticals and what he sees happening as we move into this more digital and more remote world. So we can take this wealth of knowledge and experience and distill it into our own lives to get ahead in our own businesses and our own careers. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome back, guys. Really excited to have Eric Edmeads on the line. Good morning, sir. Good to be here. Yeah, really excited. This is going to be a really great conversation. We were talking a little bit about your interview you do with Jordan Peterson and how it turned into a little bit more of a, you know, psychological <laughs> evaluation and talking about sales and entrepreneurship. And I'd love to kick off there, man. If you can let the audience know a little bit about what you're known for, what's your reputation uh, in that side of things, because I know you've got a lot of fingers in lots of pies right now. You know, I, yeah, it's funny. These days, I'm mostly known as the founder of WildFit and you know, a, a company that does um, health coaching and nutritional coaching around the world. But, and, and I suppose for speaking, uh, you know, I travel around the world as a speaker. But my real background is um, basically entrepreneurship. I, I started mm -hmm. my first business when I was 27, and we were selling uh, mobile computing systems, data capture, barcode scanning, you know, logistics management, that sort of thing. And I sold that business after uh, nine years of running it. And then I took two years off traveling around the world, attempting, apparently attempting to find myself. I, I, I looked in Bali and I looked in Thailand. I looked all over Africa. Eventually I did sort of find myself and I got back into business and I bought a Hollywood special effects company in, um, uh, in California and got involved in film production and sort of parlayed that into military research and development because film production wasn't paying very well. Um, and eventually exited from there in, uh, in a variety of ways. And then, um, and then you know, I, I, I decided to pursue my sort of original childhood when I want to grow up fantasy. And that was when I, when I left school, I, I, I was really curious about being a teacher because I had been lucky enough to have a few teachers that had a really serious impact on me. And I, and, and, but then when I found out, and I'm only speaking for Canada here, I don't know how it is all around the world. I gather not so different, but when I found out how little respect we seem to have for our teachers, you know, financially or generally, I decided that being a teacher wasn't really for me. But now having arrived at the other side of some entrepreneurial success, I decided to go into teaching in a different way. And I got into professional speaking and running programs and teaching entrepreneurship and, and even public speaking and some other things. And so that, that's, that, that's my journey in 68 seconds. Yeah, amazing. And it sounds like you've had a really, somewhere along the line, you picked up this knack for being able to pivot and you know, see where an opportunity lies, like going from you know, a studio into military stuff. Like, wh where do you think that originally came from, the ability to see opportunities like that and knowing when to make those decisions? You know, um, I think part of it just comes down to having a, general, um, a generally adventurous spirit and, and being curious about things. Like, I, I can't pretend that it was any great genius of that we did that pivot. That what really happened is that 
um, you know, Jamie Heineman, uh, you know, many people know Jamie from Mythbusters. He had worked at my studio long before I ever bought it um, and had left and reached fame with Mythbusters and so on. And he had a lot of military contacts. And at one point he approached our studio and he said, listen, you guys are doing, you know, great work in the space of, say, you know, creatures and pyrotechnics and robotics and all this kind of cool stuff. The Energizer Bunny used to live in the, in the studio. Like we've done lots of interesting work. And, um, and then he, uh, he came to us with a proposal of doing uh, basically initially problem solving and research and development for intelligence services, CIA, DEA, NSA, U.S. Army, that sort of thing. And, um, and of course, we, we did that. We did only non-lethal stuff. We didn't get involved in weaponry at all. They never asked us to, but we wouldn't have. And, um, but the biggest project we did there was really fascinating, and Jamie really spearheaded, was uh, developing hyper-realistic uh, trauma simulation mannequins to train warfighters on, you know, the kind of injuries that they were facing in, in, in wartime. And before we came along, I don't know if you've ever done CPR training, but if you, if you have, it's, the dummy doesn't look very real, right? By the time we were done, the dummies were so real that there were medics opting out of the training program because it was too traumatic for them. And of course, that means that they were doing a great job of not only training, but as it turned out, they kind of acted as almost like a PTSD inoculation in a sense, like totally interact with this dummy. And so if this particular injury happens out in the field, it won't be as shocking because you have some experience of it. Wow. And so as what was your role in all of that as the as the entrepreneur and as, as the business builder, like, you know, I, I, I can tell you my role was, uh, basically the business, you know, running the business and, 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 and problem solving at a high level and every now and again, interjecting a thought that might be interesting, um, at the creative level, but that really was not me. I mean, I, 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 uh, um, as I got to know a lot of the projects, I, I did start to have an understanding of them, but the, I mean, there, there was one funny time when I, I interjected an idea. It was it was kind of cool because, you know, I bought the studio and and some of the people in the studio were very grateful that I bought it because basically had I not bought it, they were all out of work. So I, I saved them. And so some of them had a lot of gratitude about that, but others had this like, you know, they, they treated me like I was just some kid who came in to buy one more action figure for my Star Wars collection, you know, or something because the studio had been part of Lucasfilm. And, um, and I remember there was this one meeting we were having and one of the projects that we were working on at that stage was to develop this, this system of, networked um, jellyfish looking boys that would um, spot, uh, um, you know, uh, drug dealer transports coming in underwater in, in semi-submersible transports. And anyway, so I'm, I'm looking at the schematics of this thing on the wall and it's this really super cool jellyfish that sits on top of the water and it's got these tentacles that have metal detection and radar and, and microphones and so on. And then it, there's this wire that runs down to the ocean floor and on the ocean floor, there's this big, you know, collection of, what is that? And they go, well, it's, those are basically car batteries. They're, they're 12 volt batteries. They, they, and, and I, well, like how long will they last? And they're like, well, you know, three to six months or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly. And then I said, okay, but up in the jellyfish, what's in this area here? And they said, well, um, ballast, you know, you got to weight it down and, you know, so it won't flip over when the waves come. And I just said, and I had this idea and I thought this is, I don't even want to say this because like these guys are really, I, 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 I mean, I don't often walk into a room and feel like I'm not at least able to engage intelligently with what's going on. But these guys are some of the most creative, most intelligent, best problem solving. These guys have been solving problems for George Lucas, some of them for 20 and 30 years. Like, I don't have a good idea. I don't. But I have this idea and I feel like if I don't share it, I'm going to kick myself. So I, 
I overcome my resistance to share the idea. And I go, well, couldn't, couldn't we just put a big copper donut in there and then put a big magnetic ball as the ballast? And one of the lead guys, and he's super smart, like he's, and I love him, he's a great guy. And he, he goes, he goes, Jesus. <laughs> and basically what I had suggested is putting the copper donut in there and putting a magnetic ball in the inside means that as the boy is moving on the ocean, the ball rotates inside the copper and it's just a dynamo. It would just pump electricity back down to the batteries. And at that point, nobody ever thought of it. But I want to be clear. I think that's the one and only time that I suggested an idea that was, that was workable, usable, added value. The rest of the time, I was running the business. And this is a very big distinction, I think, in entrepreneurship is there's a difference between being um, self-employed and, um, and being a business owner. And being self-employed means you're doing a lot of things. You're required by the business on a day-by-day -day basis. Um, uh, being a business owner means you don't really need to be there. Um, and when you are there, you're working on very high, you're working on the business, not in it. And so, yeah, I really wasn't involved in a lot of those inner projects, except, except when it came to say large sale contract negotiation, financing structures, or, or problem solvings when something serious happens, say with the union or with the, or with the studio or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, we'll come back to that entrepreneurial part. I'm so curious though. How did you come to purchase this in the first place? Oh, that's a crazy story. Um, and really, it's crazy. So my, my good friend, uh, Gavin Wilding, is a, um, I, I, he's a prolific film producer in Canada. He's never had that big you know, sleeper success, but he's made 20-some-odd films. And they've all, uh, yeah, and for the most part, he's returned money back to investors in every case, which, which makes him, like, in my opinion, the most successful, unsuccessful producer. This is his and my joke. He's the most successful, unsuccessful producer ever because he hasn't had that, that big you know, hit. So now... He calls me up and he says, I'm up in, uh, he goes, I'm, I'm, well, actually we're in LA. And he asked me to host a show for him in LA. And I'd never done any, any of that kind of work, but he, you know, he had an actor and the actor bailed on him and he needed somebody to come and host the show. So I said, oh, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. So I go and I do this work with him for a couple of days and it goes really well. And then he says, do you want to go for a tour of the old ILM studios? And, you know, if you're me, if you're seven years old, when Star Wars came out, I mean, the original Star Wars, of course. Uh, then somebody offers you a tour of the ILM studios. I mean, that's like, well, the only equivalent would be Mecca. It's like the Mecca of, yeah. of, Mecca of science fiction, the Mecca of everything. And so we, uh, so we head up there and it's not an open studio. It's not like Universal where you can go on a tour. It's a, it's a closed studio. And the reason he was up there is he was consulting with them on raising money. And so we're sitting in the George Lucas Theater, which sadly I heard this week is finally closing down. Though the 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 whole studio is closing down. Um, it's really it's really sad. But in any event, I, I'm in the uh, I'm in the audience watching, and they're doing a presentation for a bunch of investors that have come in. And I got to tell you, Josh, it was the worst. It was the worst presentation in the history of presentations. It was like it was like basically it was a lesson on how not to raise money. It was so bad. It was so bad. And so. I, I went to Gavin afterward, we were walking through the lot and, and, and I go, Gavin, they're never going to raise money like that. Like never, ever are they going to raise money like that. What do you mean? What would you do differently? I go, well, this and this and don't do that and do this. And, and he goes, would you mind telling them about that? I'm on a tour. I'm not telling them anything. I'm not, I'm not here, you know, cut to, he's got me in a boardroom. There's whiteboards everywhere. I can only imagine the things that have been drawn on these whiteboards. Like the, the, this is Mission Impossible, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Harry Potter, Star Trek movies, all the Star Wars movies. Like, what has been on these whiteboards? I'm walking, I'm looking around. 
And now all of a sudden he goes, so uh, Eric, tell the boys what you were telling me about their presentation. They're like, oh, Jesus. So I said, well, you know, I would not do that. And I would add a little of this and blah, blah, blah. And then one of them goes, well, we have another group of investors coming in this afternoon. Would you do the pitch for us? No, I would not do the pitch for you. I'm on a tour. I am quite literally on a tour. I am not doing, well, cut to, I'm now standing. Like, I feel like I'm in some kind of surreal, hallucinogenic nightmare. And I'm standing on the stage in the George Lucas Theater, looking up at a group of investors with the clicker in my hand. And I'm like, some, I, I feel like I'm in a, I feel like I'm expecting Ashton to walk out and go, you've been punked. Like it's, I, and, and so I, I, um, I, you know, I'm doing the presentation for these guys and I'm able to do it. I run through it and, and I do the things I suggested we do and I didn't do the things I suggested we don't do. And then, and then questions started coming from the investors, lots of them, which is by the way, always a good sign, right? And lots of questions, but what the hell do I know? But weirdly, I knew a lot of the answers to their questions. And when I didn't, I knew, I'd learned enough to know who to refer them to. And I, I, I navigated the Q&A and, and, and one of the investors, he goes, well, I have one more question. Like, what, what? He goes, well, if we do invest, will you be staying on to manage the studio? <laughs> no, I'm on a tour. It's like, I, I didn't say that out loud, but in my head, I certainly did. And as it turns out, that investor group didn't choose to invest, but what happened as a result of all that is that the, um, one of the controlling partners in the business, um, you know, they got caught up in my enthusiasm for what was going on, and they asked me if I would consider um, stepping in as a lead investor. And so I, I, I ended up taking the majority share in the business, and, which ended up being one of the most challenging, um, most difficult things I've ever been through in my life, but also one of the most rewarding. Wow, what was so difficult about it? You know, um, there's an op the, you know, there's the uh, this sort of opening sequence um, as as you know an old Star Wars reference here, but Obi Wan Kenobi is talking about walking into the Moss Eisley's cantina, Moss Eisley cantina, and he's talking about never before has there been such a collection of heathen and scum. Well, I would tell you that that's what was going on at that studio. There were some unbelievably golden people there, just just amazing people there, but sexy industries attract charlatans and scumbags. And so, unfortunately, there was a lot of heathen and scum involved in that, in that deal. Um, one of the guys was actually an owner, and he had duped the other owners pretty seriously. Uh, in fact, he'd concealed his identity from them. And so by the time I bought in, um, I, about two months afterward, I found out who he really was. And it's a longer story how I found out. But when I found out who he really was, what I also found out is that he'd been facing, um, I, I can't remember now, but it was like 500 years in prison. Uh, for for investor fraud under his other identity, and he and he did a plea bargain with the government, you know, because you got to be lenient, and he did a plea bargain with them, which allowed him to get out and dupe another round of investors, and and so it was it was um it was a really difficult difficult time because of that, and then not only was there that particular heathen or scumbag, there were countless other ones that came out of the woodwork and you know just try to get a piece of the action every step of the way. The reason I bought the studio, by the way, was I have had this idea for a long time that. Um, well, look, even the way I do content, the way I do seminars and workshops and that kind of stuff is through something we call behavioral change dynamics, which is a, a system of storytelling and a system of delivering content that makes it really sticky and transformative. And, um, and so I, I remember as a child what an impact, I, I, it's a little cliched, but what an impact the original Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies had on me because they, they were wholesome. There was something wholesome about them. You know, you see... You see Harrison Ford starting off as like 
you know, in, in, in Star Wars, starting off as a scoundrel and a, and a bit of a scumbag, and then he becomes the hero. It's the proper hero's journey. It's a, he, mm -hmm. he, I, I don't even think people realize that th those movies were actually, they think it was the story of Anakin Skywalker. I don't. I think it was the story of Han Solo becoming this hero. And, uh, and of course, you know, do or do not, there is no try and all that stuff. And those things had an impact on me as a kid. And so I always felt like what I would want to do when I, quote, grew up was to make transformative movies, movies that were highly engaging and entertaining because they fundamentally good stories, but that had really deep lessons in for the audience. And so the purpose in buying the studio was to get the studio running, doing its core business, and then take the downtime months and use the studio for creating content. And unfortunately, I was hit with so many lawsuits and frivolous garbage that uh, there was, we never even got, we never even got to that stage. And, and right at the end, we put together financing and we put together a proposal to turn the entire property into a film school. We'd been down visiting with the LA Film School and looked at their business model. And we, and we, and we're like, and, and, and we put the investors together and we had a really cool model because can you imagine if you're thinking about, about going to film school, imagine if you could go to film school in the very same building that Pixar was created, that THX was created, that Photoshop was created, that most of the Star Wars movies, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Iron Man, the list goes on. That would be the ultimate place to go to film school. And um, sadly, uh, the, uh, the the landlord who owned the property there just, you know, she, I, 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 um, money was more important than Marin County and and uh, and mm. culture and stuff, and it just didn't work out. Wow, man, what a journey! How long was that was that period when you? You know, it, it had different phases. Like the studio itself, I think it was about uh, two years in and we put the studio into chapter 11 to try and reorganize it because of all these lawsuits and debt and what have you. So the biggest what's, what's chapter 11? Oh, American. Uh, it's an American. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a form of, um, it's a form of say pre-bankruptcy. It's like you, you enter into chapter 11 and you get protection from the courts, from your creditors. So they can't shut you down while you try to reorganize the business. And when I bought the business, it was in a phenomenal amount of debt and it had literally never made money. It had literally never been profitable. And so we then took it into chapter 11, reorganize it. We got it to profitability for the first time in its history. And we had a reorganization plan accepted by the creditors. But one of the original shareholders, you know, uh, just refused to let us do it. He just, he kept tying us up in court and one day we basically, we reached this D-Day point where we had to accept or decline Spider-Man. And if we accepted it, and then this guy put us out of business, then we were really screwing the studio over. And so we had to go to the studio and say, we're sorry, we can't take this because this, you know, this one shareholder is, is still holding out. He didn't care. I, I don't know what was going on at that stage. He was, you know, I, I, I don't know if he was just getting bad legal advice or whatever it was, but that, that was the final piece that forced us to actually close the studio down. Now, separately, you know, we, we, had, um, we had created a 3D camera engineering company, which, you know, our cameras got to work on Avatar and, and Iron Man and some other films and productions, but in the end, we couldn't compete with Pace, so that company didn't really work. Um, it was interesting and fascinating. Um, but the military company worked really well. Our, the, the products that we created there won awards from the U.S. Army and Congress, and, you know, um, and, and that lasted for many years after. And that business uh, eventually was uh, acquired by a big publicly traded company in the U.S. and still runs today. Wow, man, that's incredible! So, what a wild story! There's a lot going on at the same time as well. Yeah, um, yeah, it was a lot to deal with. What What do you think your main like some key takeaways were for you once that all kind of wrapped up? You know, um, one of them is obvious, um, but sadly, if yeah, look, entrepreneurs, um, 
they are generally more optimistic than is healthy. And what I mean by that is that if you consider that something like 80% of businesses won't make it to the fifth year, if anybody came to you and said, here, invest in this stock, but 80% of companies like this fail, well, you would have to be a ridiculous optimist to make that investment, right? And so entrepreneur, anybody starting a business has an unhealthy level of optimism. Uh, you know, and, and, and the only way you lay, later look at it and go that it was a healthy level of optimism is if they're one of the few that makes it, right? So the trouble is, is that if you generally have that unhealthy view, that un, unhealthy level of optimism, you'll probably apply that optimism in other situations. Like, for example, you have an employee that's like not really delivering and you keep seeing the best in them and you let them stay and you let them stay. And when you know, maybe, maybe they should have been let go a long time ago. Or another example, like in my case is, um, doing proper due diligence, you know, like I, I got caught up in the excitement of what was going on. The timeframes are involved. They, they were quite literally up against deadlines with workers' compensation that they were going to go out of business. If I didn't execute the deal, like within days, then the whole studio was going to die. Everybody was going to lose their jobs and the opportunity was going to be lost. So I allowed the pressure of that to let me optimistically see over into the, I mean, they had told me we have all these projects coming in the fall with, with Lucasfilm and with Disney and what have you. And and, 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 and of course, those projects didn't end up coming through. And, you know, so I, I allowed my excitement and my optimism to override the requirement for really good due diligence. And I think that's something everybody has to realize is that the better the deal looks, the more due diligence you really should, should undertake. Um, and, and then the other one, the other lesson is a little more esoteric, but it has to do with the management of your own state of mind as an entrepreneur. And, and one of the ways I would put this is that, you know, if you take a look at, say, you know, I, 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 I enjoy watching tennis. And, and, you know, if you look at Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, I mean, th these guys have dominated the sport for the last whatever, you know, years. And if you look at any one of them, um, very rarely, in, as they, certainly as they matured, did you see them lose their cool? You know, they, these guys really like, you know, there were odd moments here or there, but generally speaking... And, 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 and more to the point, if they did lose their cool, they lost it in a split second moment and then regained it. I mean, Federer, one of the things he was so amazingly famous at is coming back from impossible situations. And, 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 and you know, that's really tough in sports. Once you're losing, your, your biochemistry changes into a loser and then you lose. Well, somehow he was able to change his biochemistry back into a winner and win. And so when I speak about this in the, in the context of business through our programs, I, I say this and very often people do, yeah, but... I mean, if I was playing professional tennis at such a high level, I would manage my state of mind better. And I'm like, okay, but here's what I want to put to you. How big is the opportunity in professional sports or in acting? Same thing. You can't be Robert De Niro and let some bad news affect the next scene. You have to be able to manage your state of mind no matter what. Yeah, but the opportunity for them, I mean, if I was acting in a big Hollywood movie, I would do it. Would you? Could you? Because what I would say is this. If you look at the top earners, in acting or the top earners in sports, some of them crack over into the $100 million level, but that's about it. They don't really crack past that. And by the time you get like through the top 10, nobody's making 100 million. They might be making 10 million. And by the time you get out of the top 50, these guys are living in trailer homes. Now I'm half exaggerating, but the truth of the matter is, is that in the world of acting in sports, the window of opportunity is unbelievably tiny and it's only the very top people that are making it. Those other people also have to manage their state of minds. Whereas the sport of entrepreneurship, the upper end of the sport of entrepreneurship is in the billions. I mean, you can name billionaires all over the place because there's lots of them. 
And then after billionaires, there's the there's the three-digit millionaires, and then there's the the I mean the unfortunate two-digit millionaires, and then those poor bastards down at the single-digit millions. There are thousands of them. So entrepreneurship is the ultimate in professional sports. Plus, on top of that, you don't reach your peak until you hit your 50s anyway. Whereas in most sports, you're done by the time you're 30. Entrepreneurship is the ultimate opportunity, but it requires the same level of emotional state management that professional sports does, only even more because we play it for longer. Right. Wow. Could you give us some tips on how to maybe be more aware of that and then how to manage that or get better at it as a practice? You know, maybe like just like training, you train for sports. How do you train for this? And yeah, you know, um, I think one thing is that um, there's a there's a moment when the stress and the anxiety and, and the fear of, of a situation can become very, very real. And, um, and so then what we do is we, talk, we typically turn to food or drugs or sex or whatever to distract ourselves from that in that moment. And maybe at times, I gotta tell you, there's the odd day where I've just been in a shitty mood and the best thing to do is watch Liam Neeson rescue his daughter from the kidnappers. And that's just, that's, that, that's what works that day. I'm not saying that you can't use those things. I think you just gotta be careful about them. But the, the, the real exercise that I think is amazing is as I was going through this movie studio nightmare, I was beginning to realize that I had taken, I would, you know, I'd taken basically all of my money and put it into this deal because I'd sold my previous company and I just, I did the classic mistake of entrepreneurship. And, and so if it all went to hell in a handcart, I was done. I was out of money and I was starting all over again at 40 years old. And so I was married at the time and I sat down with my wife and I said, listen, I need to play it out. I need to know what is the worst possible situation here? And we went through it and we're like, well, she still had her job at this other bank in Turks and Caicos. We had our house. It, we already had a mortgage um, and our cost of living was really quite low. Um, and so we suddenly realized that at the worst case scenario, we could simply go home and we could live on her salary, albeit tightly, but we could do it. And, and that would leave me to figure out what was next. I would be able to figure out what was next, starting another business or starting another career. So we, we, when, we, when we looked at it, we, we were able to get to the truth of how bad it really could be. And we realized as bad as that was, it wasn't that bad. And so now we don't have to respond to it the same level of anxiety or fear because it's really not that bad. In fact, there, there came this one point where we're like, well, that doesn't sound so bad at all. We could just throw in the towel and go home and do that now because that would be nicer than what we're living through. And so suddenly we realized that the worst possible outcome was better than where we were. And as soon as we saw that, we started enjoying ourselves better because we were no longer living in fear of some boogeyman outcome. And weirdly, uh, this is really fascinating. We were walking along one day and I, I, I said to her, I can't live like this anymore with the fear and anxiety. We got to start being happy. We got to start having fun. We got to start going out for dinner. You know, we got to, we got to, we got to have dates. We got to, we got to like get our life back. And we did that. And within about two, three weeks of getting our emotional lives back on track, we won a succession of movies, including Elysium, Pirates of the Caribbean 3, and Iron Man 2. Bam, bam, bam. Now, we were doing reasonably, not, not major projects for either of those movies. Oh, for Elysium, it was a pretty damn big project. But all of a sudden, we had enough business coming in the door, and we were able to stay open. Like, we were able to keep everything floating. And it was amazing. And here's my greatest gratitude about that. We can get into some esoteric conversation did our changing of our vibration, if we want to watch the movie The Secret, did the changing of our vibration have a, a metaphysical impact on reality and bring those contracts to us? Or 
or were those things going to come in anyway? Or is it possible that my energy as a person changed when I sat in those meetings and I created a greater degree of attraction? All of those things have some degree of possibility, but the most important distinction is this. Thank God we found happiness irrespective of the external results. Because if we had not found the happiness and the external results happened, then we would have found happiness reinforcing the idea that my happiness is dependent upon external results. Yeah, huge, man. Huge. Yeah, it's, it's wild, isn't it? Like if, how easy it is to get stuck in that trap, you know, especially when you're, you're like hustling and working so hard and so focused on something and it becomes about the goalposts. And then, but really you've created this unattainable, like aspirational thing that just keeps going further and further and further away you know and you yeah. get caught in a cycle so and it sounds nice and you know thankfully i've also got a great partner who you know have those conversations with and that sort of thing and what would you say to someone who's kind of stuck in it like they're like and they're it almost feels like well if i was younger that is a driving force. The anxiety is a driving force. The paranoia is a driving force to for me to get out of a situation. You know, what if I feel good and I feel like I'm going to take the gas off the brakes? That's the thought I've had in the past. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing I would say to that is that we are currently living in the safest times in the history of ever. We live with a greater degree of certainty about our day-to-day -day survival and food availability and, and shelter. We, we, we live in, a, in, a, in an era of safety where you can pretty much walk the streets of most major cities in the middle of the night with a degree of safety, maybe avoiding some bad neighborhoods. Um, you, are, you do not have to live in fear on a day-by-day on, on -day basis. If you go back even 200 years, if you go back even 200 years, it was not like that. Life was unbelievably difficult on a, on a, on a level that, yeah, I don't know. Have you ever seen the series Outlander? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Outlander, I quite enjoy. It's, it's, it's been fun to watch. And, but here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you noticed this. The woman, who was she before she got teleported? For those, you know, for people who don't know the show, a woman touches some Stonehenge type rocks and she ends up going back to like 1680 or something like that. You know, medieval England. Do you remember who she was before she got teleported back? No. She was a World War II combat nurse. Right. Rough. Why? Right. Because she was the only woman who could have survived that. And no, or man, for that matter. No 1950s era man could survive 1650. No way. No way they'd survive it. There's no antibiotics. There's no anesthetic. There's no hot and cold running water. Food is something you have to try and find every freaking day. Like, no 1950s era man could survive those times, let alone a 1940s era woman, except that this woman is a World War II combat nurse, tougher than nails. And that's why she had to be, that's why that character had to have that background to go back. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that we have instincts and biochemistry that evolved for those very difficult circumstances. And so now we fast forward into this time frame, which is frankly so easy for us that we are swallowing more antidepressants and more more anti-anxiety drugs than we've ever swallowed ever. We, we, we have more addiction and more suicide and more, uh, more alcoholism than we've ever had. And the reason is, is that life isn't hard enough. The truth of the matter is, is that life is too damn easy and now we have to create a bunch of difficulty and stress. So when somebody is in that hole, 
when they're in that hole, it's hard for them to see that, but there's a few different things they can do. Some of them are psychological. Like one of them is think for a moment of the lowest point in your life and then offer to change it, offer to exchange it with a pharaoh in Egypt. Think about that. A pharaoh in Egypt who didn't have a car, who didn't have Uber, who didn't have a, a, a smartphone, who didn't have hot and cold running water, who didn't have antibiotics, who didn't have painkillers. Do you want to live like that? You don't want to be the pharaoh of Egypt. Do you want to be a, a lower middle class dude in, in today's world comparatively, right? So when you, when, you, when you think about how hard life is, you realize you, you, there's another way to look at it, and that is that it is actually the easiest lives we've, that humans have ever lived. Then the next version of it is, kind of related to this is, Teenagers understand this. They just don't understand it yet in the real world. And, and here's how it works. Kids playing a video game. What do they do when you get to the end of the level, when you've got the big boss or the big talent? You don't recoil in fear of it. You don't whine and complain about it. You don't, you don't, and matter of fact, you might even try to, try to find a cheat code around it. You might try to do that. But then if you do that, you'll feel a little empty. The real issue is that you buckle down and you get over the level. And by the way, what gives you a greater reward? Getting through the level on your first attempt or you couldn't get through it for three weeks and finally you got through it? Yeah, totally. Way bigger reward. Teenagers understand that relative to games. If we could take that thought process and move it into our business life, we would be you know, champions of business because that is what's going on. Every challenge that you're facing, every difficulty that you're going through is just strengthening you. I. I Morgan Freeman says this beautiful thing in one, some video I saw. He says, if you ask God to, um, to grant you strength, he doesn't just bestow strength upon you. He thinks up imaginative ways to make you stronger. Yeah, totally. And then you have to live through it and become stronger. Yeah. Totally, totally. So, with, you, know, you, you coach a lot of entrepreneurs and have helped entrepreneurs throughout that journey. Like, as far as... What, what are you seeing are the most important skills that people need to have to, you know, navigate today's landscape versus when you started your journey or, you know, that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or, or do you feel like they're pretty much the same? Um, I think there, there are core things that are the same. Like one thing that's a little bit different about me compared to most, say, business authors or speakers is that um, many of the ones that I've seen are um, theoreticians, and th that is to say that they've never actually had a business. They went and saw some business seminars and they decided to become a business coach or something. And there's a lot of that out there. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying they can't be good business coaches. Sometimes those who can't do teach and that, that works. But then you have another type of business um, coach or mentor, which is somebody who has hit a home run and they've been successful, but very often they've been successful in one space or they've had repetitive successes in that one space you know, say they hit it big in real estate and then they hit it big again in real estate. Um, where I've been a little bit different than that is that I've had successes in, uh, in the IT sector in a variety of different locations there. Then I've had some success in, in you know, military research development and Hollywood special effects and consulting and event management. And what I would say to you to answer your question is that there are some core principles of entrepreneurship that apply in any industry and in any era. You know, and, 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 and some of those things are um, you should be constantly seeking to add value, like constantly seeking to add value. And, and, and I mean, really like, it's funny. I had this boss once and, and he was not a very pleasant human being. And, and, you know, what would happen is I would, um, come into work very early in the morning. Like I would often be there for five or six in the morning. Cause I had a lot of clients in Europe. So I was coming into Vancouver early, early in the morning to serve them. And then he was, you know, 
strolling into the office at if he if he came in early it was 11 a.m. and uh, and so but I would leave by two or three and he would always criticize me for that. I'm like, I've been here since five, dude, and I'm the top producing salesperson in the company. So what's the problem here? And he and he and then he sat me down with this like fatherly. He goes, well, when I had a job. I, uh, I worked in this warehouse and when I got all my work done, I picked up a broom and I started sweeping the floor. I said, I said, but what if the floor was already clean? He goes, I'd sweep it anyway. So people would see that I was working. And I was like, I think you think that's a virtue, but what you've just admitted to is dishonesty, right? Like mm -hmm. I am not going to look like I'm working when there's no work to be done. I'm actually going to get the work done. And, and I think that um, the difference is that's an what he was talking about is an employee mindset, a dishonest employee mindset. And what I was talking about is an entrepreneurial mindset, which an employee can have. And by the way, when I was an employee, I had an entrepreneurial mindset. I pumped gas in, in, at, at Petro Canada in, in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's minus 15 outside and I'm pumping the gas, right? But I sold more oil than anybody. I sold more oil than anybody. And, and we, we, we didn't get commissioned for selling oil. It's just that one day somebody had told me that the average person driving around the car is usually down about a liter of oil, which is causing their engine to erode more quickly. And so once I learned that, I'm like every client that came in, I'm like, can I check your oil for you? Can I check your oil for you? And I would check their oil and I would sell a lot of oil. But you know what else was the byproduct of this? Nobody, nobody tips those gas attendants. I've always thought that's a tragedy that these, these waiters and waitresses that are working in the safety of a nice restaurant with warm temperatures and what have you, they get all the tips. We're out there like wiping windows, and pumping gas in minus 20, nobody tips us. Only guess what? I got tips all the time. And I got tips all the time because I was constantly seeking to add value. So I think that entrepreneurial spirit doesn't have anything to do with whether you own a business or not. It's a spirit you can have and you can have it as a child, you can have it as an employee. Look, when, in Nova Scotia, when I was a kid, the snow would start coming down what am I doing? I grab a shovel, I walk out, knock on doors and offer to sell, to, to clear their sidewalks for them. I was always thinking how to add value. I think that's one major, major virtue of, 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 of success in business, no matter what era. And I, I'll give you one more and we can go on and on, but one more that's super important is um, effective communication. Being able to communicate your, your thoughts concisely, clearly, being able to influence people those, you know, that, that set of skills um, is maybe the most important set of skills somebody in business needs to have. And I would, I would say that one of the greatest upgrades that anybody can offer themselves in the entrepreneurship space or in the professional employment space is to overcome whatever nerves they have about public speaking and become comfortable and confident at speaking in front of a room full of people or a camera and deliver their messages that way. Because scientifically, the most impactful form of marketing that exists in the world in terms of emotional memory is face-to-face -face interaction. Nothing, is, nothing creates a deeper, more lasting impression than that. But of course, if, you, if you're held back by fears of public speaking or just not feeling, not, not feeling good at it, then, you're, then how many meetings can you have in a day? Even with Zoom, you can only have so many. Whereas if you can, have, if you can speak comfortably in front of 500 or 5,000 people, then you can have face-to-face -face contact with a lot of people. And when you're talking about selling, raising money for your company, recruiting. There's, a, there's a, a ton of ways that being effective at speaking can completely change your business. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to, if you can expand on that, like let's say someone's not a beginner. They're not like, oh my God, I've never talked to anybody before and this is the scariest thing in my life. Like what if they've reached some level of competency? They're like, I'm pretty good and they've worked on it. You know, they've worked on it, done some courses or something like that for maybe a year, year and a half. 
what would you say are some breakthrough skills they could learn next to get to that next level of competency with speaking and communication? So most of the people that are in the situation you're describing pretty much need to unlearn most of what they've learned because what they've learned is cultivated and curated public speaking style. Like I, I'm a big fan of what Ted did for us and created the, you know, um, this platform for sharing of ideas. But I now know that what they put people through, like I have a theory, the reason that TED Talks are restricted to 18 minutes is because 18 minutes is as long as an audience is willing to put up with boring. You know, and, and uh, like many of those TED Talks, I mean, there are obviously some exceptional ones. Ken Robinson's talk is one of my favorite speeches in the history of ever. Um, and so there's been some phenomenal TED Talks. Uh, uh, Bruce Music does a phenomenal one at TEDx in City and just great storytelling, deep, impactful, right? So there are some really powerful TEDx Talks out there or TED Talks out there. But there are many more that are, are, are dry and empty and have no emotion in them. And, you know, they're structured perfectly and they were written out as a script and what have you. So, you know, um, I, I, would, I, would, I would back up and say, you know, think about it this way. How many times have you been to a conference where the majority of the speakers on the stage made you wish you weren't sitting there? Right. And that's almost conferences. And you got to remember that a lot of those people are being paid to be there. They're being flown to be there. So that means the bar that that would be like that would be like for me in tennis showing up at Wimbledon and seeing a bunch of people serving at 30 mile, at 30 miles an hour. I'm like, they serve at 30. I can play in this game. I can. Of course, that's not going to happen at Wimbledon ever. Right. But it's the same idea. You look at those conferences, you go, the bar is not very high. And so I would say that, you know, we could do a whole master class on this, but I'll just offer two key points. The one is um, uh, effective storytelling, really effective storytelling, learning how to, to create an experience for the audience that makes the audience forget that they're in a seminar, that forget that they're at a conference. If you can learn that type of storytelling, it changes everything. And then the other, uh, the other thing I would say is, um, and this is a little harder, um, but it, it is to be really you, to actually be yourself. And, and a lot of people go, yeah, but I am. Well, no, uh, you know, maybe you are, but my experience is that a lot of people think they are and they're not. And one way you can measure that is, um, you know, how would your presentation change between say 10 people and, and a thousand people? Or how would your presentation change if it was eight year olds versus 40 year olds? You see, each audience causes us to affect a change to our presentation. And that's because we are meeting the expectation of that audience that we're, we're in essence, we're assuming what they might judge about us and then trying to deliver in a way that will, um, you know, that will uh, appeal to them. Now, what that means very often is that if you take somebody and have them talk in front of a room of their peers, they will be safer. The, the more judgment they experience, the safer their presentation will be. And so pretty soon they'll be so safe that it'll look like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, fellow salespeople at the conference. Today, I'm going to deliver an incredibly safe presentation. You can hear that I've been working on my voice and that I've written my speech out and practiced it perfectly. I'm going to continue to rotate my head in this motion because that's what they told me to do. And occasionally, I might use a hand gesture. Like, you know, they, that's a good presentation in a lot of conferences. But what's happening there is that that person has fallen into a model of being very, very safe to avoid the judgment of others. The joke of the matter is, is you wanna be the life of the party when you're on the stage. And I don't mean silly, I just mean you. Mm. Yeah, I love that, love that, man. I, I love to look at, as a business owner, 
And, you know, like you said, you're not working in the business, you're working on the business. If you've got an employee who is doing really well, and what if you're like kind of like that engineer or you are that salesperson, you're kind of like, I want that raising commission. I want the more. What would you say in communicating to, you know, who's above you, your boss or your sales leader or something like that to be able to get that, get to that next level? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very important conversation to have. Um, and l let's start off with um, you have a five year old girl who wants um, candy. Can I have some candy? That's not going to work. And then, but the other kids are getting candy. That's not going to work, right? So I, I, I'm kidding. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are too many people whose parents coddled it, and they 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 learned to whine or complain to get what they wanted to get. And, and so unfortunately in the workforce today, you've got a bunch of entitled people that are often approaching an interview like that. I deserve it. I've been here for long enough. It's, you know, and, and, then, and then they become a victim and they become indignant and there's nothing attractive about that at all. So instead what we want to do is, is approach it like almost like a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. You're not going there and, and like, please, sir, can I have some more? You're going there and saying, what, th this is one phrase to use. What would have to happen in order for me to get X. Uh, you know, what would have to happen in order for me to get a promotion? What would have to happen in order for me to get a higher commission level or, you know, whatever. The, the beautiful thing about what would have to happen is rather than saying, can I have one, which ends in a yes or a no, what would have to happen, you know, kind of oh, is a possibility question. It's like, there is no no to that. By the way, if you go up to an employer and you go, what would have to happen for me to get this? And they go, nothing. You got to go find another job. Like you've just been told by your employer that there's nothing that can happen for you to get a raise or get a promotion. You may as well leave right that moment, right? You may as well walk out the door. So if you go, what would have to happen in order for me to get this? Then that opens the possibility. The other thing is to, to go another level. And that is to say, is to go in for your job review and say, I would like to know from your perspective, how I've been performing and you, you, this and this and this and this. Okay. But what I would like to know is what could I be doing that would impress you even further? Like, what are my next milestones to hit? You know, if they say, well, I'd I want you to sell 1.4 million this year. You go, all right. But what if I, like, what I want to say to you is my target, my personal target that I'm going to set for myself is 1.5 million. And I'm going to try and push a 32% margin on that. And then the employer's going to go, Jesus, that's very, by the way, that's entrepreneurial thinking, right? The, the, the employer's going to go, wow, that's very admirable. And then you go, and... If I hit those goals, I, I would like that you and I sit down and have a meeting about a pay rise. Now, you, you could even go further. You could say, I want higher commission. But one of, the way, one of the best ways to telegraph that stuff is to ask for the conversation in which the, the, the employer knows that you're going to be asking for that raise. So you're going to, all right, another version is, um, you know, just in a given month, what's my target for this month? It's 3,000. Okay, but if I hit 4,000, I want to have a, I want to take you to lunch next week, next month. And I want to talk about my future here in the company because I think that I can do even bigger things here. Wow. Shit. Okay. Go hit the four. And then when you hit the four, you go time for lunch. And by the way, any employer at that moment knows that that lunch is coming with some asks and you've earned the right. Totally. Love that. Love that. Okay. And then what would you suggest given that we are now in a very remote and very digital world. And FaceTime, like you mentioned earlier, is really important that it creates deeper connection. And, you know, some of us have, like a lot of us have the opportunity 
and, and the financial wherewithal to maybe go make a trip to a different country or a different state to go and have that lunch with someone in person. What would you say the value is on that? And do you think that that's a... I think it's infinite. I think that um, uh, I, I think that face-to-face is only be- going to become more and more value as more people retreat off into the metaverse. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw that latest metaverse. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know if it was... Was it Lex Friedman? I can't remember, but somebody was doing mm. an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did the podcast in the metaverse. It was such a trip. Dude. It was trippy, right? And, and, you know, maybe there will come a point where our, our biochemistry reacts as though it's completely real. But I, I, what I want to say is that it's not just about that moment where it feels real. It's about the things that happen afterward. It's about going and breaking bread together. It, it's about going and hitting around a golf or going scuba diving or doing stuff together. You know, I, I remember years ago reading about social bonding and um, discovering that um, the tightest social bonds that have been witnessed you know, in social sciences are the bonds that were created. There's two good categories. One category is... Um, the, the soldiers, the World War II soldiers that fought in the trenches. Those soldiers formed social bonds so strong that they continued to, con- they con- continued to get together every year, every year until they all were gone. In fact, I remember seeing one of those reunions where there was only one guy left and he still went to the reunion even though nobody else was going to be there. He still went. There was something unbelievably powerful about going to battle with each other. Now, I'm not recommending that we all go to battle with each other, but then the other version of it is, is that legacy sports teams have created similar things like that. Like if you look at the players that played with Jackie Robinson, um, they, they were a legacy sports team and they formed bonds that really, really worked. If you look at the 1970s uh, Montreal Canadiens or the, uh, um, you know, any of those legacy teams that won multiple championships in a row, um, what happens is those players often remain friends for decades. And what I'm, I'm not suggesting we all have the opportunity to do that, but what I'm showing, what I think I'm suggesting is that the more real time you spend with somebody, no matter how real this interaction gets, you and I could do this in the metaverse and I could walk away with a memory that you and I met. Maybe, maybe biochemically I fully respond like we were together, but what we can't do afterward is go for a walk on the beach. Okay, we can probably go for a walk on the beach in the metaverse, but <laughs> we, oh, we would know it wasn't real. And, and I think there's... I really think that the chance to face-to-face mm-hmm. meeting people is imperative. And again, I want to upgrade this. That is also the reason why we, at, at Speaker Nation, we talk a lot about the, the leveraged power of that face-to-face thing. Like right after the pandemic, sort of after the travel restrictions sort of went away, um, I, I did my first keynote, uh, you know, first presentation. It was for 800 people in Ireland. 800 people, it's not a huge, huge audience for me, but after three years of alone... <laughs> It was a lot of people in one room. But my very next presentation after that was 10,000 people wow. live in the room, never mind who was watching on the live stream. And what's amazing is, is that I will bump into those people on the street. Um, like I, I've done a lot of big events in Estonia, oddly. And when I walk the streets of Estonia, people walk up to me and they, they, they walk up to me and they go, hey, um, you, you know, we met at the event. I'm like, we did? Yeah, because they came up to me and got a selfie and they remember. But they... For them, we met and spent three hours together, even though for me, they were in the audience. And so I think that face-to-face thing is, is super important. Yeah, and I've seen you mention like that you were kind of surprised at how many opportunities came from you know, this public speaking career that you've had. Could, could you expand a little bit on that? And you know, we, we touched on communication earlier, maybe the importance of someone who's, they've got their own business, they're trying to build that reputation and that profile. Yeah, um, so if I stay away from 
um, say the business of being a speaker and just talk about speaking in business. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I've, I've kind of had two speaking careers. I sold my first business and traveled around the world and accidentally became a speaker, truly. I was invited to do this talk in London, England, and it went so well that a guy walked up to me and he goes, wow, could you do that same talk in Singapore next week? And I'm like, okay, I, you know, and then the next week I'm in Singapore and no kidding, a guy walked up and he goes, could you do that same talk in Australia and New Zealand? Uh, uh, you know, in two weeks. I'm like, yeah. So I flew and then the next, and then somebody came up and invited me to do the same talk in, in uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Uh, but two weeks later, it's like, I became an accidental speaker. But after that, I got back into business. And so that's when I bought the film studio and I was involved in all this stuff. And um, because I didn't really understand the whole speaking thing when I had my first company. And I can tell you, I would have exited with at least one more zero on the end of that business if I had understood this. No question. No question about it at all. I would have exited with at least another zero on there, if not more multiples than that. Um, speaking is the ultimate leverage, and I didn't know that. So then when I got involved in the, in the in, well, think about it. First of all, it was my skills with public speaking that even landed me the opportunity to work in the original Lucasfilm studio. Like that, that already came as, as a result of that. But then um, as I got kind of you know, better known in the industry, I started getting invited to speak at different conferences and panels and what have you. So I spoke at the Variety 3, 3D Summit in Los Angeles. Next thing you know, I've got top executives from studios and hardware manufacturers coming up to me and asking me my advice on 3D technology. What the what do I know? I've owned the company for three months, right? I, but it meant that I could capture their details, answer theoretically the answers I could get, and then connect them with one of our specialists. So it opened the doors to phenomenal, phenomenal opportunities. I traveled around the world doing that. And that was not as a speaker. That was as a business guy speaking on behalf of my business. It is the ultimate leverage without question. Mm, wow. Could, could you, would you mind, I know you've told this also, would you mind telling us the Tony Robbins story? I think that was just epic. Yeah. So, you know, basically what happened is that um, Tony and I had a very good mutual friend. His name was Chet Holmes. And um, Chet Holmes uh, was partnered with Tony in a, in a business. And uh, um, they needed speakers that could speak on business and marketing, that kind of stuff. And Chet had recommended a few people and they hadn't worked out very well. And, um, and so then Chet recommended me, but because his other recommendations hadn't worked out very well, they weren't, they weren't interested in me. And then, uh, um, and then, and Chet had been ill for a long time and, and then he, he seemed to be in recovery. He'd, he'd had cancer and he seemed to recover. And so they scheduled him to speak at a conference in, in, in a private um, a version of Tony Robbins' business mastery seminar. And it was in uh, Fiji. And they scheduled Chet to speak and about 11 days before the conference, he passed away. And, um, and that was a Friday, if I remember correctly. And on Saturday, I got this phone call at my house in Turks and Caicos saying, hey, listen, uh, Chet's passed away and Tony wants you to come and speak at Business Mastery. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. And he goes, no, no, it's really true. I can, I can. And they go, no. I said, I know what's going on. I said, here's what's happening. Chet passed away and you guys are now scrambling to find somebody to do the slots that Chet normally does. And because there's only 11 days notice, you've called everybody else and they've all said no. And so you're down to your last option and that's me. And what you're hoping is that I'll say yes. And then if I say yes, you're gonna call Tony and you're gonna literally beg Tony to let me do it. That's the truth. And Mitch goes, there's a silence. And Mitch goes, yeah, but I know I can convince him. So <laughs> I had like nailed it. I was like, so I, I, funny enough, my response to him was, let me think about it. I, could, I don't know where I had the guts to do that. I said, let me think about it. I said, I'll call you in an hour. 
And, and I walked away and I was married at the time. And my wife was the hugest Tony Robbins fan. I think the only reason she married me is I bore some resemblance to Tony when my voice gets gruff. That's, that's, you know, I'm kind of kidding, but I went and told her and she's like, call him back right now. And I go, nope. I told him I needed an hour at 59 minutes. I called back and said, all right, I'll do it. And, um, and they, you know, they called Tony and they convinced Tony to let, let me have a chance. And so I flew out there and they told me this, they go, listen, um, you're on stage for three and a half hours and it's in Chinese. So you, you have a Chinese translator on the stage. It's not headset Chinese. It's a guy on the stage. So you have to say the sentence and then let the Chinese guy say a sentence. And you got to do that for, this is not, this is one of the most difficult speaking exercises anybody could be given. And they said, now Tony will stay in the room for 15 minutes. And at 15 minutes, he will either get up and leave. That's the good news. It means that he's busy. He's got a lot to do and he has faith that you're going to go okay. Or he's going to get up and take you off the stage. <laughs> and that's, and then you could fly home. And that's the pressure I'm under, right? So I go up on, on, on I, I'm getting ready to go on stage. But, but before that, one of the team comes to me and goes, hey, Tony wants to meet you out in the hallway. And I had met Tony some 15 years earlier, you know, as a, at a seminar, but not met him to know him. And, you know, Tony wants to meet you in the hallway. So I go out in the hallway and he's, I mean, he is, he's very, very tall. And I, uh, I'm like, hey, hi, Tony. And he goes, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I was just honest with him. Like they'd given me 11 days notice. They wanted me to use Chet's slides. I don't use slides at the best of times, never mind somebody else's slides. So I was honest with him. I said, well, I have 11 days. I, 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 I could have used a little more time to prepare. You guys want me to do Chet's talk rather than my own. Uh, I, I'm going to do the best I can. And he did not like that answer. He goes, we well, could be a lot more confident. I like, oh, I've blown it already. I'm not even gonna get my 15 minutes. But what did Tony Robbins tell us? He goes, you know, nobody calms down when they're up here and you try and be down here. Calm down, Tony, that never works. So I just jumped up with him. I'm like, oh, I'm plenty confident. I said, the only reason I'm here and your other speakers aren't here is that they're all business operators. I'm a business owner. So, the, you know, it might not be exactly the talk you're expecting, but your audience is gonna love it. And he goes, well, all right then. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I, I, I walk away quivering from this exchange. Like, I can't believe I've just, I just shouted at Tony. I'm like, oh God. And, um, and, uh, and so then in, in the meantime, what happens behind the scenes is he was not planning to introduce me because the truth was, you know, some of the other people that Chet had recommended to Katahana had a bomb and he didn't want to be associated with that in case I bombed. But after our meeting in the hallway, he's like, Hey, uh, you know, I think I'll introduce this guy myself. So he, he goes to his team and he goes, where's, where's Eric's bio, his intro? Oh, the, the translator has it. Where's Eric's bio? Oh, it, I translated it to Chinese and I threw out the English one. <laughs> so Tony's like, well, translate it back. I mean, how hard could that be, right? Well, if you've ever played that game, it can be plenty hard, right? Especially when you get to numbers. So the short version now is that the bios was a boring bio, you know, Eric's not really a speaker, he's an entrepreneur. He started his first business and sold it nine years later. You know, it's, it, but it got lost in translation and Tony gets up there and he goes, you guys, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. He started his first business when he was only nine years old. <laughs> That's not exactly what it said. But uh, I told him, he, we had lunch a couple of days later and I told him about it. He had a good laugh, he thought it was good. That's so funny. Man, as a as a last wrap up, because we're coming to time here, like it sounds like there's serendipity or luck, and you know being in the right place at the right time, but also having the skills to take advantage of those opportunities. Could you talk a little bit about maybe your perspective of luck 
you know, something that I've been thinking about or I've heard talked about that I really resonate with is that lucky people, because they think they're lucky, they're actually luckier. Well, funny enough, um, the book, The Luck Factor, uh, talks a lot about that exact principle. And they did this uh, study they talk about in the book where they took a bunch of people and made them walk through, um, they divided them up into lucky and unlucky. And they had the lucky people walk through a department store and money had been hidden in various places. And the lucky people you know, found the money. Then they took the unlucky people and they walked them through the department store and they didn't find the money. And so then the important question is, how did they determine the lucky versus unlucky people? They just asked them. It was, it was a belief. If you believed you were lucky, then you tended to, and you know what's really crazy is, I was telling this story in London, England many years ago, and I told the story on stage in a workshop, and I was talking about finding money on the floor and, and how if you're lucky, when you see stuff, you see it differently. Um, Beliefs are very much like little viruses that exist in your subconscious, and they're constantly looking for evidence. So if you have a negative belief, it's constantly looking for evidence to support itself. And if you have a positive belief, it's also... So if you believe that you're lucky, you're, you're that, that belief is constantly looking for evidence that you're lucky, which could be money on the ground. And I told this whole story, and no kidding, I'm walking down the street in London, and from about four readers away, I spot this tiny little square and it's, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's, um, I don't know, I, I've heard drug dealers do this, but you, you fold the money up into these tiny little rectangles. And that way, you know, your, your money is super small. And, and, and there's this, this little tiny, like origami folded up 20 pound note is on the ground over here. And I spot it from four meters at night. And I would put to you that I saw it because A, I generally believe that I'm lucky, but I had just told that story. And so it had activated that, that awareness. And, and I think that there's a lesson in that for everybody. And that is that, um, you know, if you, if you believe that all the great opportunities are gone, you're going to keep spotting examples of people that have already lapped up the best opportunities. But if on the other hand, you believe that there's new opportunities happening every day, every time you see somebody lapping up an opportunity, you're going to go, wow, look, evidence, there was another one, you know, and that opens things up for you. So, uh, yeah, I, I, and, and then, of course, there's the old cliched idea that, you know, preparation meeting opportunity is where you find luck. And I think that that's a big part of it is that when you have put yourself in a position where you got the life experiences, you developed the skills, um, you, you've uh, cleansed out your aberrant behaviors, you, you, you've got your state management in place, the more you work on yourself, uh, the more luck you're going to experience. And, and I, that, that, that has just been very true for me. I, I found that the, the more fun that I am having and the more dedication I put into my own development, the, the, more, the more luck finds its way. Man, what a great place to end it. Thank you so much.